get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. It's Thursday, March 23rd, 2023, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'm your moderator today, joined as usual by the three stars of our show, our Goodfellows. That would be the historian Neil Ferguson, uh, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, and for reasons I'm not quite sure, the economist John Cochran. What are you doing in Tokyo, John Cochran? <laughs> Uh, I'm visiting one of my kids who is uh, teaching English in Japan and uh, having a wonderful time here and showing us around. So it's great to be here. Do you have something special about Tokyo? Well, can I give a, I have some tourist notes from Tokyo because I haven't been here for 10 years mm -hmm. since before COVID. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting place to visit. Uh, message America, your cities, do, it is possible that cities do not look like zombie apocalypses. Um, there is no trash on the street. And there are no trash cans. Uh, fascinating combination. There is zero crime. There is zero homelessness. There isn't this sort of army of, of, of drug addicts and, and mentally ill people. There are clean public restrooms anytime you need one. If you go out and listen in the streets, it's amazing how silent it is. Nobody beeps a horn in Japan. Uh, people are, of course, unfailingly polite uh, at everything. Uh, taxi drivers and bus drivers are polite. People take pride in their jobs, uh, even the most humble jobs. I saw a guy directing traffic and, and doing so in, in a you know clear, professional, and, and proud way. There's, of course, some signs of, of um, I'm sure not everything is perfect in Japan. I haven't seen anybody under the age of 16 in, in quite a long time especially in, in central Tokyo. But but cities and, and public transit, by the way, is, is flawless, impeccable, clean, safe, and, and all the rest of it. It's possible, America. It doesn't have to look like our cities. That's all. Hey, hey John. Hey, John. This, I, mean, this, I, just, I just pulled this off my bookshelf. This is uh, the 1979 book by Ezra Vogel, you know, the great scholar of Japan, called Japan as Number One, Lessons for America. And it's, I mean, it's still, it's, it's exactly on your point in terms of you know, what we can learn by, by how Japan has organized, you know, its urban areas, how it, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, anyway, just wanted to make that point. Yeah. No, 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 nothing's, every, I'm not saying everything's perfect here. Japan has all sorts of social problems and, and uh, economic problems and so forth. But uh, just the fact that it is possible to run a large city so beautifully is hey, uh, hey, John, striking. Since, since you bring it up, uh, yeah. Japan has, I think, the largest, uh, public debt in relation to gross domestic product of any of the major economies uh, in the world. Where's their inflation these days? <laughs> uh, the fiscal theory of the price level about which you are needling me is not so simple as <laughs> debt causes inflation. And I'll, I'll turn it around. Uh, you know, if Japan proves that 230% debt to GDP doesn't cause inflation, then what about Turkey? And what about Brazil? What about Argentina? What about dear old UK, who seemed to run into the limit at about 100% debt to GDP ratio, or the US uh, the same? Uh, so things things are not so easy. And uh, and uh, there's lots of reasons why for why Japan is different, which I won't bore everybody with. But it's kind of worth exploring for a second, because these are issues we talk about a lot in the show. We had a show on demographic trends recently. And in a way, Japan is the experimental laboratory 
of the society of the future because it's the society that's aged the fastest. It's the society where fiscal policy has driven up debt the highest. It's a society where the central bank has had to essentially become a debt management agency to control long-term rates. And you as an economist are really well placed to tell us, is this where we're all heading? Or are there very special features about Japan that make all of this compatible with the kind of social stability that you describe, which impresses me every time I go there. I go to Japan and I always think this is the nearest thing to going to another planet that you can do on this planet because it's so profoundly different from our messy ways. But, but is, is that just because Japan is so different or are there lessons here for the rest of the developing of the developed world? Well, Japan is, of course, culturally different and culturally much more homogenous than the U.S., um, my my son who teaches in, in Japan uh, notes that they spend a lot of time on inculcating proper behavior uh, in the schools, uh, which our education system doesn't. They 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 consciously pass on a culture, uh, which is part of uh, part of what they do. There's a chapter uh, in the book on that on basic education, by the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, Japan is still highly populated. You know, the demographics are ratios, but the uh, population density is is quite high in Japan. Tokyo is not an empty city by uh, by any regards. Uh, I think their debt situation is is um, uh, it, it's not quite so strange as it looks like. Their debt is mostly held domestically, uh, mostly long term debt. Our debt is mostly short-term debt held by foreigners. They ran a trade surplus for year after year, so there's lots of assets around. They are still a quite high tax uh, country. They're not treating their debt as a a free money, uh, magical monetary theory piggy bank uh, to spend things on. And and every time anything looks um, touchy, they raise the taxes. So the idea that Japan will will default on their debt or, or inflate it away seems uh, much further away than it does in the U.S. And I'll, I'll leave the economics there, but there's plenty of reasons why uh, Japan seems to be doing okay. And there's luck. Uh, low interest Debt is always about the interest payments <laughs> in the end. Uh, so um, as long as interest payments are low, you can afford that huge mansion in, uh, in, the, uh, in, in Palo Alto. But then when interest rates go up, things start to look a little dicier, which is, I think, something we're going to learn all around the world uh, soon and possibly even Japan. There's always the just wait argument for apparent bubbles. In the five minutes we have left in the show, shall we get to questions now? Or <laughs> you asked. <laughs> Thank you. My fault. My mea culpa. All right, here we go, good fellows. This is uh, part two of our mailbag show. Question from Peter in the UK: Given that most empires since the Middle Ages have lasted about one hundred years, how much longer do you guys think the U.S. empire will last? And what can honestly be said for its lasting legacy to the rest of the world beyond Coca-Cola and McDonald's? Well, gee, I don't know. Apple, Hollywood. In fact, we're all not speaking in German right now. Neil, why don't you take it? Empires. Well, I wrote a book about this 20 years ago, and and um, you don't need to call it the American empire. The United States is still the number one superpower 20 years on. It's not true to say that there's some average lifespan of an empire. In fact, if one looks at empire duration, they're not normally distributed at all. Uh, some empires don't last any time uh, at all. Think of Hitler's empire, which really... Uh, barely lasted uh, a decade, in fact, somewhat less if you date it from the first expansion of 1936 to its destruction in 1945. Other empires, take the case of Rome, uh, last not just for centuries, but but uh, for a millennium. So I don't think it's true to say uh, that there's a sort of average duration. 
that's actually one of the most fascinating features of, of history, that, that empire duration seems to go, be governed by a power law. The United States is a very curious kind of empire, as I try to argue in the book Colossus. It's an empire in denial. It doesn't like to acknowledge that it's doing imperial things, even when to everybody else it seems pretty obvious when you're you know, invading Mesopotamia and sending armies into Afghanistan. That's what empires have been doing for a very long time. But, but, but Americans are deeply uncomfortable with the idea. And, uh, and that, I think, has to do with the, uh, the legacy of being formed in a struggle to leave an empire. And so I think as long as Americans have that strange ambivalence about global power, perhaps that will ensure it, that it endures. Uh, I think that's a really distinctive feature of of American power that it's as much uh, empire by invitation to use a phrase from the the academic literature as as empire by invasion. Uh, if if America said we're pulling all our troops out of uh, Western Europe with immediate effect, which of course uh, a Republican president might do in January of 2025, I think the Europeans would be up in arms uh, in a, in opposition to that decision, which tells you something about the nature of American power. But Neil, don't, don't empires fall from within? I mean, I look at America and, and it takes 10 years to get the permits to build the windmill and another 10 years to actually build the windmill. Uh, even the Roman Empire didn't it, and, and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, did, red tape, I think, was invented by the Ottoman Empire. Literally, you had to cover bundles in red tape. So I, I see the the huge colossus that is is um, no longer functional inwardly, and then when a when a great challenge comes, is unable to rise to the occasion. Is that the story of ends of empires? Perhaps wrongly, I associate red tape with the British in India, but the, the, I, I may be wrong historically the, on that one. A rule of thumb which I've used for many years and writing books about empires is that when when debt service this will appeal to you John when debt service charges exceed the defense budget uh you're heading for uh imperial decline it's it's a rough and ready rule but it's certainly applied to the Ottoman empire uh to- didn't didn't queen victoria at the end of the at the end of the uh, uh, uh war, at the end of the napoleonic wars UK is the the prime example of paying off its debts. I saw. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to get that fact well, straight. But, but but the military budget was uh, was higher than the wow. debt service even at that point uh, because Britain was running the largest navy uh, on earth by far. Uh, so I think this is a, a, a good rule. I mean, Br- British history is actually quite an interesting illustration of this because the empire has. Uh, this uh, a very successful debt management system. Uh, debt service costs are very low on the very large British debt because Britain has a an anti-inflation strategy or commitment called the gold standard. So I think the answer to the question is that those who predict the decline of American power are in very good company with the people who predicted the decline of American power in the 1930s, who did it in the 1970s, and who've been doing it uh, for the past 20 years. And, and these people are always wrong because the United States is very, very easy to underestimate. This was one of Hitler's perhaps most fatal mistakes. And I can see uh, Xi Jinping doing it now. I think the United States has this superpower which will uh, 
is as long as we don't lose it, keep the United States in a dominant position for generations to come. And that is the part to import talent from the rest of the world, and equip it with capital and opportunity. And that's the thing that I think has set the United States apart from its very, very inception. It's, it's that openness to talent combined with the resources that it can make available to the talent. And nobody can match that. I don't see anybody matching it in my lifetime or my children's. John Cochran, let's uh, send this question your way. It's from Don in Ontario, Canada. He writes, short question, big answer, or bank failures, government failures? And I want Neil to answer this as well, because he wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal, Jermaine, to this. John, go ahead. Are bank failures, government failures? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, there is a central problem of banking. If, if you uh, um, let banks do whatever they want, which is to uh, borrow money via deposits and invest at risky, there is a danger of a run. Uh, so uh, it's a combination. Uh, it is a failure of a government to set up the rules of the game. We, we, you know, you need rule of law and, and rules of the game that that make sense. So it is uh, partly a, a private failure to, you know, if you take on the extra risk, but also a failure of a uh, bare bones minimum regulatory legal system you need to stop that kind of uh, of throwing dirt in the well uh, sort of activity. Neil, you recently co-authored a piece in the Wall Street Journal with the very clever headline, Life Certainties, Death Taxes, and Bailouts. Well, the, the, the world that I wouldn't like to inhabit would be a world in which no bank ever failed because the government controlled the banking system. And I get nervous every time there's a banking crisis because Martin Wolf and, and others rush into print, my friend Larry Kotlikoff, with radical reforms to transform the banking system uh, by abolishing fractional reserve banking and turning yes. banks into utilities. <laughs> and I, I don't believe in this. Uh, and I, I, I find it amusing that these articles always appear whenever there's a banking crisis. Look, a few banks have failed. They were really badly run. That happens in every sector of the economy. The issue, in my view, is did the government's new regulations that were created after the last financial crisis, which we called Dodd-Frank for short, but there were a bunch of regulatory changes at the international level too. Did those fail? And I think John and I are in agreement that they did. Uh, they must have failed because they were thrown aside, not only in the US, but also uh, in Switzerland, as soon as it became clear that bank runs were happening. Uh, so I think one ha has to look back and, and ask, did we learn the right lessons uh, from the last financial crisis? I said at the time, I wrote this in the, the revised edition of The Ascent of Money in 2018, that the Dodd-Frank rules would, would fail on contact with another banking crisis, uh, because in fact, in many ways, they made the system more vulnerable and not less vulnerable. So we told ourselves a story, or rather, the authorities told themselves a story that they'd made the banking system safer. And the last few weeks have shown that that, that wasn't true. So it's not so much a failure of government. I think failure of bank management in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, that's for sure. Uh, but I think one has to give uh, the monetary and regulatory authorities very low grades indeed for the way they handled this crisis. And by the way, this crisis isn't over precisely because of the uncertainty that's been created by the improvisation. When the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says, Actually, not all deposits are insured. We'll decide on an ad hoc basis which ones are. You, you see just how big a mess they've got themselves into. Watch this space. The show ain't over.
Okay, let's turn to our crisis now approaching its 14th month. HR question from Wayne in Austin, Texas. It seems reckless that the International Crime Court charged Putin with war crimes, i.e. their international rules-based order versus a nuclear head of state. They have now explicitly made this into an existential struggle for both parties. Yay or nay? Nay. I mean, that's what happens maybe when you kidnap 70,000 children. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I mean, it's if you look at really the devastating effect that this reinvasion going, we're going back to 20 uh, to, to 2014, the initial invasion of Ukraine has visited on the Ukrainian people. I think it's 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 difficult to overstate the degree to which Putin has committed crimes against humanity. You know, and and, um, and so I think he's his actions have met that standard. It's a it's a well known standard actually developed uh, by by a, a philosopher and, a, and an attorney uh, who was based in Lviv uh, after the First World War. And I, I think, you know, I, I think you just have to look at his actions and recognize that that he is it was certainly worthy of that sanction. You know, the H.R. McMaster cult of personality continues to shine through our mailbags. Uh, the last episode we had you running for president. Now we want to uh, relive your glory days in the military. We had a question from Nagar, Nagarjuna in India and Miguel in Shenzhen, China, asking variations of the same question. Can General McMaster please recount his experience of the great tank battle in which he fought? HR, this is the Battle of 73 Eastings, which was, what, 32 years and a couple of months ago, right? Yeah, it's hard to believe it's been that long that long ago. Well, you know, I mean, it just comes down to, to a well-trained team, and we were confident in one another. Uh, we were confident in our in our equipment, our, our Abrams tanks and our Bradley fighting vehicles. Uh, but that confidence serves as a bulwark against fear in, in battle. And we were able to gain uh, a, a, an advantage associated with surprise, not like in a classical sense that the enemy didn't know we were there. But the defending uh, Iraqi brigade had no idea that, uh, about the devastating effect that an armored cavalry troop could have on them in a very short period of time. This was an army that had fought against human wave attacks by the Iranians in the 1980 to 1988 war. So their whole conception of close combat was way off, as were their their sort of idea of time and space relationships. So whereas they had a fundamentally sound defense, that defense was quickly overcome by the devastating power of nine Abrams tanks in a wedge driving at them, you know, at 20 kilometers an hour and firing around every three seconds. You know, you multiply that times nine and everybody's shooting different enemy vehicles. And, and we had a devastating effect on them within the, the first couple of minutes uh, and then assaulted through that position. So we gained not only a physical advantage, but a psychological advantage uh, over the enemy. Uh, and then we continued the assault um, really against my higher command's orders because uh, it was the right thing to do, given the situation. Uh, until we entered their reserve position of 18 T-72 tanks and destroyed them at very close range. I mean, I could see the expression on the enemy tank commander's face uh, just before uh, that that uh, tank erupted into flames. Um, and you couldn't tell the difference between our gun going off uh, and the enemy tank being hit and the sparks, you know, and, and metal, you know, arcing back over your head. Uh, but that reserve was trying to deploy against us, but didn't get a chance to deploy because we had assaulted too rapidly. So I think it really, it, it, it comes down to confidence uh, in our training, confidence that serves as a bulwark against fear, which can lead to inaction in battle, uh, proficiency uh, in all of our weapon systems and in, in our ability to fight together uh, as, as a team. Uh, and then it comes down to the initiative, right? Seizing and retaining the initiative in, in battle, which you can do in desert warfare. Once you get that first blow in, if you can follow up on it, 
in a, in a relatively featureless desert. Although there were, you know, there there was rolling some rolling terrain and uh, a couple of different plateaus that we that we uh, attacked across. Uh, you you can finish that action uh, with the initiative and have the kind of lopsided victory that we enjoyed. Okay, Neil. Uh, two questions. One, Brian and Canberra. When is the second volume of the Kissinger biography coming out? And uh, Brad in Pennsylvania, who has a statement more than a question. Henry Kissinger was right. We must seek a negotiated settlement in Ukraine. Let me turn that into a question. What is Henry Kissinger's position on Ukraine right now? Well, the book, which I'm currently in the midst of writing, 11 chapters written, I should think another 11 at least to go, that will come out next year. Uh, I'll finish it this uh, year, uh, somewhere a little after his 100th birthday in May. What is fascinating about Henry Kissinger's view of Ukraine is that it has has changed as circumstances have changed. And some people have criticized that, but I think that's uh, a naive criticism. Back in uh, the period uh, after 2014, uh, Kissinger wrote an insightful op-ed arguing that it would be extremely dangerous to continue with the pretense that that Ukraine would one day become a member of NATO. This was a path to conflict, and it would be better if Ukraine were to be a neutral state, somewhat like uh, Finland or Austria in the Cold War. Uh, And I think that argument has been borne out by events. I think our strategy of offering NATO membership without delivering it uh, utterly failed uh, and indeed incentivized in some ways Putin to risk war uh, in 2022. Kissinger's uh, view most recently has been that Ukraine has now earned membership of NATO. Uh, He said at Davos and and, uh, uh, he said it elsewhere that Ukraine has established itself as a serious military power in Europe in its own right, that it has won uh, the right to NATO membership by exposing the limits of Russian uh, military power. And that's quite a significant uh, shift. And I think it recognizes just how radically the situation has has changed. But he's also said, and I think this must be right, that we must have some concept as to how this war ends. Mm -hmm. And that without such a concept, uh, we run the risk of of creating an open-ended and potentially uh, a a dangerous commitment. And I think the open-endedness of the war is the thing that, that... that troubles uh, him right now. Uh, of course, uh, I'm just his biographer, and really anybody who wants to know what Kissinger thinks about the war in Ukraine should just look out for his next article, a book, television interview, or speech. For a man approaching his 100th birthday, he has the energy of a good fellow, perhaps rather more than that. Well done. John Carcon, I'm going to ask you a non-economic question, my friend. It's from Luke in Manchester, UK. He writes, love the show, long-time listener, first-time question asker here. I work in international education and sometimes wonder in a world where it feels that the advantages of the Western intellectual tradition are increasingly being challenged, what do the good fellows see as the key selling points of a Western educa- university education in 2023? Well, there's the university education that, that Western could provide, and then there's the university education that increasingly is providing, which I find it harder to defend. Uh, <laughs> uh, certainly, um, understanding your your culture, its values, where it all came from, 
the wonders that the enlightenment brought us and, and learning a lot of math and science is a useful thing to do. Learning the kind of problem solving and um, uh, intellectual abilities that a, a the kind of free or Western university education versus the sometimes wrote, take the test uh, education you get in other places can, can be a wonderful experience. Uh, as we all know right now, especially the humanities and, and uh, social sciences in, in Western universities are, are uh, busy throwing a lot of that away. So it's harder for me to recommend that. Neil may have some better insights than I do. It's a difficult question to answer because what Western universities, by which I take the question as I mean American and, and West European and kindred universities offer today so different from what they used to offer not so very long ago. And there has been, I think, a, a really startling decline in the uh, intellectual freedom uh, on campuses in uh, the United States, especially. Uh, this has been driven, I think, by uh, an unholy alliance of administrators, ideologically, quote unquote, progressive or woke administrators, somewhat weak uh, university uh, leaders, and, and a relatively small minority of, of radical, illiberal students and faculty. Uh, and this has, has led to an assault on academic freedom. Uh, which manifests itself uh, in cancellations, uh, in the disruption of uh, uh, events. This happened at Stanford very recently uh, when an invited speaker uh, of the uh, Federalist Society was shouted down by students and then by a, a dean representing uh, the law school administration. Uh, one of the better features of that particular episode has been the response of the dean of the law school, which uh, uh, which included a rather good restatement of the principles of academic freedom that Stanford is supposed to uphold and which weren't upheld on that occasion. Um, though I was somewhat discouraged by the, the consequences for those who disrupted the event, which seemed, uh, I, I thought, uh, insufficient uh, considering what had happened. But, you know, right now, it's pretty hard to say uh, to a young person, you really must go uh, to college, you'll have a great experience, because it's obvious from the surveys that Heterodox Academy and others do that the experience is not great, that undergraduates feel they have to self-censor, uh, that when one speaks to them, they uh, seem unhappy, that mental health uh, is a, a, a problem uh, which is uh, absolutely out of control in many uh, campuses, something's gone awfully wrong. And I think something has to be done about it because we can't allow the uh, elite institutions, the institutions that complete the formal education of our young people to be run in this way. It's completely contrary uh, to the founding spirit of these institutions. Uh, the wind of freedom is supposed to blow on this campus uh, and uh, it really, it really doesn't. So I'm, I'm, as uh, listeners, viewers may know, involved in trying to create a new university in Austin that will model academic freedom, in the belief that it's really important. And if we can just remind people of what university is supposed to be like, not only uh, intellectually tremendously stimulating, but challenging, exciting, risky, 
if we can uh, if we can do that in one institution, maybe we'll remind the established institutions of what they're supposed to be for and bring about a renaissance in higher education. That would be nice. Could I, could I just add the, 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 the experience that I had, and I think uh, the others of you, both of you also had, uh, the university is a place where you get to go try on seven crazy ideas before breakfast, meet the young Trotskyites out in the, in the plaza, stop by the Federalist Society, um, you know, live in a dorm or a frat that has self-organized activities, make a couple mistakes, do some dumb things, change your ideas, uh, express crazy ideas and hear other ones coming back. Um, that sort of wonderful experience is now very much gone, I would say. And I'll just pass one anecdote on. The Stanford band, marching band, was well known for its wonderful pranks uh, and much more interesting than the football game used to be the Stanford band. They, of course, did uh, said some things that weren't uh, weren't weren't uh, appreciated. Now they're put under intense faculty control to the point that um, the faculty director of the Stanford band now must approve all nicknames given by band members to other band members. If you want to see, you know, your, your chance of forming your own organizations and, and learning yourself, being a little transgressive, all that things that cause Silicon Valley falling apart, having to get nicknames approved by the faculty sponsor, just uh, that says it all. <laughs> we can do an entire show on the Stanford band, beginning with the fact that you don't even have to play an instrument to be in the Stanford band. You can just play the air guitar if you want to. Uh, let's do one last big picture question. Uh, I want each of you to take a shot at this and we'll go to the uh, vaunted lightning round. This is from Karen and Phoenix who writes, we, myself included, her, not me, are all basically of the same generation. We were taught that America, though flawed, is the best country and that capitalism rewards hard work. I read the other day that millennials now outnumber we baby boomers. What effect will a majority of Americans with differing values from our own have on the way our country governs, projects military strength, HR, and sees itself in the world order? Well, I'm optimistic. You know, I think that some of these some of these orthodoxies, these reified philosophies have have become prevalent or taken over humanities departments and universities. We we're just talking about that. But I think what what helps people come to their senses is responsibility and real life experience. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, that on the college campuses, as, as Neil's doing with the University of Austin, but really our, as we teach, when I teach at Stanford, we raise these questions, right? We have meaningful discussions. Nobody's canceling any, anybody in, in the classes that I teach. And, and I think that what you want is to maybe encourage young people to question these orthodoxies and ask them if it makes sense to them. I mean, does it really make sense to you to judge the man or woman next to you? you know, based on their identity category rather than by their heart and their soul and their character and their, their, their empathy they have for one another and, and, and their, their work ethic for that matter, or their, you know, their intellect, or of course not, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to anybody to organize people on sort of, a, you know, strata of, of, of oppressor and, and victimhood. Um, of course it doesn't. So I, I think, I think just encouraging our young people to question these orthodoxies uh, and then, and then to really, uh, you know, I think some of the, the, the positive developments in the academy in, in recent decades is a broadening of curricula, the bringing in, for example, of uh, of different types of, of literature and and philosophy and history. But what happened is those 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 new forms, aspects of the curricula, sought to dominate and to squeeze out. You know the the older the, the older elements of the curriculum. I mean, hell, diplomatic history and military history broadly. You know, so so I I think that it is time for a correction, but I'm confident that the young people who have been subjected to what you know what I call the curriculum of self-loathing uh, in our universities uh, will get better. 
you know, kind of like uh, in in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, when when uh, when the person claimed to have been a newt, uh, but got better. What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. I got better. Burn already. <laughs> John. Oh yeah, get better or die out. Um, uh, you're increasingly businesses are saying, ah, we don't need college degrees. Governments are doing it too. Uh, new apprenticeship programs are showing up. New universities are showing up, and enrollments in in humanities and social sciences are just absolutely absolutely crashing. Well, humanities especially. Uh, colleges are still a great place to learn to do math and program a computer and and uh, build a bridge or something of the sort, and and will remain so. So, the the fundamentals of uh, America are so common sense that I do think uh, you're right. And I, I love what you said, you know, young people, you know, how do you, uh, um, the old joke about being a socialist when you're young, unless you have a heart and, and being a, a uh, conservative and unless you have a brain, but that comes from responsibility and getting away from the college campus and, and to the business of having a job and raising a family and, and making the mortgage does sort of bring you back in contact with that that deep common sense in America. So I, I'll, I'll join with HR and the optimism and hopefulness of America's capacity to, to go back to common sense and, and reform these institutions. Well, are we going to be optimistic all around or do you want to strike a different chord? Well, I did some work on this uh, a few years ago with my uh, former student, Ike Fryman, and we wrote a piece about generational politics. It's been my view for some time that generational divides are now the real divides of American politics, much more so than than class or even ethnicity, though people love to talk about race. And in truth, the the difference between uh, the baby boomer generation to which we belong and Generation Z, uh, the twenty somethings who are relatively new to political life, is absolutely huge on almost every issue. And I don't agree with John that everybody kind of starts out on the left, gets mugged by reality, and ends up on the right. That's actually not the historical experience. Generations often have their political outlooks formed by a particular salient event relatively early in their political lives, and then they don't move radically away from that. So if one looks at the uh, the attitudes of particularly Generation Z, they are far to the left of this group. Uh, on, on the question of socialism versus capitalism, slim majorities say they prefer socialism. One assumes they don't know what socialism really means. We did some work on that at Hoover a couple of years ago, but I rather worry that they do know what it means. So I, I'm much more troubled about the, the shift in generational attitudes that is underway in American politics. I think it's going to create uh, a formidable obstacle for Republican uh, for the Republican Party in the years to come, uh, because to, in so many ways, uh, the young are estranged from conservative ideas. And, and this is partly a failure, I think, of conservatives. They've not understood how to address the concerns of of young people. Uh, and, and, and I think ultimately, to go back to our earlier conversation, it is also a failure uh, of conservatives to maintain any kind of uh, position of influence in the academy. I mean, look at the political profile of university professors. It's overwhelmingly to the left. The, will the last conservative professor at Stanford turn out the lights uh, when he or she leaves. And that's why, I think that's partly why the attitudes of the young strikers are so far to the left. Conservatives 
gave up on higher education or were driven out of it, depending on which view you take. And I think it's a pretty bad outlook we therefore have. The only good news I can offer is I think there's another generation coming. It's aged about 11 right now. And it Mm. hates all of this wokeism. It hates being indoctrinated uh, on issues of race and gender. And and ultimately, uh, I think that generation, maybe it's Generation South Park, is going to come along and say enough of this. Uh, and revolt against the snowflakes who are currently in college. Here's hoping. And is that based on a personal observation, Dr. Ferguson? Let me just say that the younger uh, Fergusons uh, are distinctly not woke. And this has nothing to do with my influence. They're, 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 they seem to have uh, arrived at these positions in reaction to some of the things that they've encountered at school. It's fascinating to watch. Well done. Well said by all three of you gentlemen. I will now step aside and it's time for the lightning round. Lightning round. Three of you should talk among yourselves. Have at. I have a good one for both of you gentlemen, and it's from Douglas in Boulder City, Nevada. Could the Goodfellows describe in specific detail how we, the United States and other Western societies, can decouple economically from China? What exactly would this take and how long would it take uh, for example, do we need to put big red dots on all the products in big box stores if it's made in China? Uh, John, why don't you go first? Is decoupling something the United States can actually do? And how long would it take? We could become as poor as we want to do. Sure. North Korea decoupled from the rest of the world. And look how great they're doing. Uh, it just would be a catastrophically stupid idea, uh, both economically and I think uh, diplomatically in, larger, in the larger world order. So you want to give up... I don't know what what fraction of your average income you're going to give up by doing it. The world is um, is the globalization is here to stay uh, unless you want to, you know, I don't know, cut half of your income. I don't want the numbers cut your cut half your income off. So, uh, yeah, you you know me, I'm I'm not not for this idea. Mm-hmm. HR, um, there have to be some there has to be some decoupling because the United States has become reliant on China for a whole variety of things uh, from pharmaceuticals to uh, military uh, parts uh, uh, to rare earths that are crucial uh, in technology, things that uh, we can't really rely on a potential adversary for. So you must, I think, favor some measure of decoupling. But how do we execute that that partial decoupling that reduces our strategic vulnerability? I think you have to focus really on three areas. And the first is supply chain resilience and not giving you know an authoritarian, you know, hostile power. If you read the four speeches that, that Xi Jinping just delivered uh, in in the uh in the two sessions, I mean they were they were preparing the Chinese people for war. So we shouldn't give them course of power of our economy. That was the lesson of Germany vis-a-vis Russian hydrocarbons. So diversifying and making supply chains more resilient, maybe not completely decoupling, but making them more resilient. The second area is we shouldn't be helping the PLA develop the weapon systems they might use to kill our grandchildren. And we've done that over many years with investments uh, into Chinese companies that are providing PLA, People's Liberation Army capabilities. And the third area is that we should not, through our economic and trade relationships, be enabling genocide or the perfection of the technologically enabled Orwellian police state. And I think those are the areas. If there are areas where we can have good economic discourse and trade in ways that develop relationships with entities that are not acting as an arm of the Chinese Communist Party, let's do that. But the problem is Xi Jinping is determined to decouple on his own terms. So the space for that kind of 
of economic discourse even is shrinking regardless of what we decide to do. Xi Jinping just made a speech saying the U.S. is trying to squeeze me economically. We got to go do something about this. There is the danger of, you know, like what we did to Japan in the 1930s, cutting off their oil supply, and that came back to bite us. So let's let's not, if the idea is just make China weak, that's a bad strategy. If the idea is, yes, don't give them fighter jet parts, I'm with you. Or John, how about U.S. venture capital firms investing $700 million back in 2014 into a company called Four Paradigm, which now does all the battlefield artificial intelligence for the People's Liberation Army. That's probably a bad idea. So, I mean, I yeah. think there's a lot we do for outbound investment screening. But, but uh, red dots on items in big bag stores, that's not a good idea. Right. Guys, keep asking questions. Thank you for reminding them. <laughs> okay, I've got a really well, short this fight, one for you guys. This I've fight got, goes on. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a short, easy one for you guys. Uh, Danny from New Jersey wants to know, can we get out of our debt crisis, out of our national debt crisis? So, um what, what do you what do you what do you have for Danny on that? That's Jones. <laughs> I think what was the actual text of Danny's question? I remember this one. He, he said, he yeah, said he, will we? He said, can we get our way out of the national debt? Is there a way out of it? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> there is a way out of it. And and uh, you know, this is just arithmetic. Uh debts will either be repaid, inflated away, or defaulted on, or grown out of. You know, what one of those is going to happen. And you know, our our choice is which one of those is going to happen. So there's there's nice ways out. And there's not so nice ways out. I want to emphasize too: the debt is really not right now our central issue. Our central issue is that we have made promises to boomers that we cannot keep. So even if you default on all of the current debt, uh, we've still got um, uh, promised payments of Social Security, Medicare, and now a much larger uh, um, other kinds of government spending that we just are not having a way of paying for it. So even defaulting on the debt doesn't solve that future problem. Uh, so these are straightforward problems to solve. Uh, you just got to sit down and do it. Oh, okay. The the best one of all uh, that came in from, um, let's see, uh, the name, uh, Yoshan from Chicago. Professor Ferguson, what world leader has the best facial hair? I can't imagine any better than Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, but I'd like to hear from a true historical expert. And you seem to be a personal expert now, too. <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, let me see. Uh, facial hair uh, was a 19th century thing. So it certainly has to be uh, a 19th century leader. I, I've always uh, rather admired, though I probably shouldn't admit this, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II's moustache. Uh, it's... Uh, it, it was one of the great tashes of uh, the late 19th and early 20th uh, century. And, and I can't say that he followed it to victory. He followed it to disaster uh, and the loss of his throne. But it's hard to think of anything much sharper than uh, Wilhelm II's moustache. Now, Abraham Lincoln grew his beard uh intentionally right in response to it and then that one that in response to a request from our schoolgirls, i remember that one worked out rather better didn't it i think the mustache free beard is one of america's worst contributions <laughs> but it worked for lincoln uh I yes, think yes. lincoln uh would almost certainly have uh had a more striking uh facial aspect without it because he had a most extraordinary physiognomy uh no i've never liked I've never liked that beard, but I'm glad you mentioned it. 
Well, the Germans, the German, late 19th century Germans certainly did a, a wonderful job with this. And I also a shout out here to our producer, Scott, who will now go out and find some great pictures of 19th century hair for us. <laughs> the worst, of course, uh, facial hair in all of history was Hitler's toothbrush mustache, uh, okay. a mustache that uh, has been consigned to uh, to the trash can of, of history. There is a very interesting uh, a theory to be explored, John, on the subject of facial hair and inflation. I came across a wonderful paper that studied the amount of facial hair that appeared in the Illustrated London News in the course uh, of the 19th and into the 20th century. And, and it posited uh, that uh, large amounts of facial hair seem to be correlated with low inflation and clean-shaven uh, faces uh, with with higher inflation, which is one reason that I've grown this beard. Well, I just, I just I, have to say that to all, you. This, all of this discussion of hair, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it is, is really making me feel like that, that I'm losing my self-esteem a little bit. I'm going to have to retreat to my safe space now. So final, so final question, <laughs> HR, so HR, where are you on the shaved head, full beard look? <laughs> That's okay. I, whatever, whatever you want to do, you know, I'm, I'm a libertarian, like like everybody at Hoover. <laughs> it's well known that HR models himself on the character of Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, as played by Marlon Brando, like a snail crawling on a razor's edge. You do not know what horror means. Horror. The horror. Curse comes to mind anytime we do the late afternoon show and the shadows start coming over HR. So anyway, let's wrap up the show. What a great uh, run we had today. We started in Tokyo. We handled some great issues and somehow we landed on the men's hair club to end it all. So uh, we hope you enjoyed uh, what questions we got to. We apologize for the many ones we couldn't, but time constraints, but we'll do this again soon. I think we all enjoyed it very much. Next time we do it, by the way, you know, ask a lot of questions. I want to find you know, let's start asking about these gentlemen about where they like to travel. Love the question about hair. I think that was a lot of fun. So we'll do it again soon. On behalf of the good fellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, HR McMaster, we hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll be back again with a new show in about late April. So until then, take care. Thanks for watching. Thanks for your support these three years. I hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.